0: Good morning. Good to see you all. When I woke up this morning about 5 o'clock, I flipped on the radio, and I listened to the weather. It was 37 degrees in Fullerton. And as cold as that is, it ain't nothing like what Kristen Rich has been going through. Or my three daughters who got off the plane the other day after boarding in single-digit temperatures. Some people have asked me around the office lately if I missed the the bone-cracking cold and the blanket of snow during this time of year. And I would have to say during this season, yes. Once New Year's rolls around, I'm ready for this. I'm happy to be living in Southern California. Uh, Well, we are in Isaiah chapter 9. Laura's already taken us there. Let's take a look again at the two verses at which we'll be bearing down this morning. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, many themes of which we have uh, sung about already this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, hear God's word. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, the recent election cycle was filled with all kinds of passion. Uh, The foment and the fury that followed these campaigns from coast to coast was uh, legendary. All the people that said that they were going to move to Canada if Donald Trump won, uh, uh, Stephen King, Barbara Streisand, Amy Schumer, There's even an island uh, just east of all that Anne of Green Gables territory up there, uh, Cape Breton Island, that mounted a marketing campaign to attract these people. If you don't want to give your tax dollars to the United States of America, Canada will gladly uh, (laughs) receive them. Well, the election's over, and it's all just continued as it was during the election. You can turn on talk radio, you can walk across campus the last few weeks, and and the dialogue goes something like this. Yeah, but Hillary won the popular vote. Yeah, well, Donald Trump won the electoral college. Yeah, but we live in a democracy where every vote counts. No, actually, we live in a republic where every electoral vote counts. And yet, as you well know from the news, not even that means that Donald Trump is going to win the election because two and a half weeks ago, a uh, Republican elector from Texas announced that he will not be voting for Donald Trump and that has posited some uh, or caused some deposit that others are going to follow his example. And social media contributors, even some of them uh, self-identifying Christians, continue serving up posts that flagrantly shame and berate those who do not share their perspective on the results. Now, the question is Have people always been this passionate about government? Well, think about America. What is the hot ticket right now on Broadway? Hamilton, that's right. How does Hamilton end? With the sitting vice president of the United States shooting one of our founding fathers in a duel to settle some argument over government. That's passion. Uh, Over 20 years after that, a sitting senator and the sitting secretary of state went to settle a constitutional difference in the same fashion, dueling. That's passion. Any of you that were alive, when the Soviet Union and its Eastern Bloc allies uh, fell, you witnessed the power of passion uh, unleashed on one government after another after another, so the the question is, why are we so passionate? Why are you so passionate? Why am I so passionate when it comes to things concerning government, and the reason is because it 's hardwired right into our very being in Genesis chapter one and two. Uh, God commissions man and woman to rule his creation under his authority. But as you well know, we get into Genesis chapter 3, and the adversary convinces Adam and Eve that they can govern themselves on their own just fine. And of course, soon after that, in fact, immediately after that, everything begins to unravel, and Adam and Eve's experiment with self-government is over. Gratefully, the Lord provided a remedy for that rebellion, which is found in Genesis 3.15. Since rebellion was introduced by a man, God determines to expunge it by way of a man, by way of a Messiah, who would fatally crush the head of the adversary by whom the man and woman were tempted and would reestablish God's rule, his government, among his people and from that point on human history has followed basically one of two paths there's a path on which men and women go pursuing the messiah after god's own making and then there's another path whereon men and women pursue a messiah after their own making and that is generally how it's gone And so the question we all need to ask this morning that I need to ask and keep on asking throughout life is which path am I on? Which path am I on? Am I looking for a Messiah who's going to save me now? Like those who gathered in Jerusalem to welcome Jesus on Palm Sunday, remember that? They cried, Hosanna, which means save us, literally now. Am I looking for somebody who sees things just as I do, who says things just as I would, who does things as I would uh, uh, hope that they would be done, whose absence leaves me, as as the recent election seems to have left some of my my Christian friends, in abject and profane despair? In fact, the, the passion with which some of my friends have expressed and are expressing themselves, makes it sound like they thought they were voting for the Messiah as opposed to the president of the executive branch of a three-branch government. So, am I looking for a Messiah who will save me now or am I looking for a Messiah who's going to save me forever? Come what may, even if everything goes south. A Messiah of such a stature that if imprisoned uh, for my belief in him, I could write, as did Paul, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, to face hunger and need. In fact, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or, from the same place, and concerning the man by whom I would soon be executed, could I write, As did Peter, honor the emperor. Could I do that? Well, the Bible makes it uh, clear that that is the path on which we should all be walking. That's the path of the Messiah who saves us forever. That is the kind of government about which we should be preeminently passionate. But human history and our own experience tells us that even God's people wend their way from path to path. And the Bible couldn't be any clearer on that point. So consider these clear uh, messianic markers throughout the scripture that point the way forward toward God's Messiah. Uh, beginning in Genesis 3.15, as I've already mentioned, and picking up in Genesis 12 with greater specificity, wherein God identifies that that Messiah is going to come through Abraham. And then in chapter 21 of Genesis, through Abraham's son, Isaac, and not Ishmael. And in chapter 27, through Isaac's son, Jacob, and not Esau. And in chapter 49, through Jacob's son, Judah, and none of his other 11 brothers. And then in 1 Samuel chapter seven, through Judah's multiple great-grandson, David. And then in 1 Kings chapter one, through David's son, Solomon, and not Adonijah. And it goes on and on and on like that. And yet as clear as these Messianic markers were, God's people regularly deviated, even departed altogether from following them. Uh, Consider these couple of examples, uh, the the, the book of Judges. At the beginning, God's people are living under God's word. They are following the example of Judah and his family, the the tribe out of which the Messiah is going to come. But even at the end of chapter 1, the wheels are starting to get a little wobbly. And by the end of the book, they've entirely fallen off as as, uh, God's people are working to govern themselves according to that which is right. Not in God's eyes, but their own eyes. Or the book of 1 Samuel, which uh, begins with the people clamoring for a king, which is entirely in keeping with uh, the book of Deuteronomy, 1715. Uh, God said that his people would have a king. But the king that they chose was one of their own making. Uh, Saul did not come out of the tribe of Judah. He came out of the tribe of Benjamin, and his profile was totally wrong. They, they picked him because he was tall. They picked him because he was handsome. They picked him because his family had money and not because of his behavioral temperance and his spiritual fidelity, which is what God's word required. Closest God's people ever got to living under that kind of king was David, who understood that even though the Messiah would come out of his family, he was not the Messiah. And who understood that the government that governs best is the government that governs according to God's word. The farthest they got from living according to God's uh, word and, and under uh, a king was arguably uh, Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the time. This prophecy at which we're looking this morning was, was delivered. Um, spiritually speaking ahaz was a mess he was a jew who had given himself over to pagan gods, so he had put politics uh, before principle and um, uh, his spiritual ruin compromised israel so that militarily ahaz was a mess in fact the author of second chronicles wrote these words He said, in the time of his distress. So, in other words, at a time when you'd think Ahaz would be crying out for God, in the time of his distress, Ahaz became yet more faithless to the Lord. And it was the ruin of him and all of Israel. So Ahaz uh, succumbs to the Philistines and the Edomites and the Assyrians. And he loses 120,000 men to Syria and to Israel, even after God promised victory on his terms, God's terms, in Isaiah chapter 7. But uh, instead of governing on those terms, has said, no, I've got this covered. I, I can do it myself. And it went terribly. So in that day, if you wanted to live by God's word, it was a pretty rough go. The Assyrians were pagans. Uh, God's people were controlled by the same. And it surely led a faithful heart to ask, as we do in our own day, from time to time, Lord, are you really out there? And if you are, do you really care about those who want to remain faithful to you? That's what makes... Isaiah's prophecy, in total, in this section in particular, which is contained in a bit that begins in chapter 6 and ends in chapter 12, so beautiful because politically speaking, the landscape is dark. But prophetically speaking, the horizon is brightening, even though uh, the uh, uh, future looked tempestuous. In chapter seven, God rebukes Ahaz. He basically says, if you won't build a government according to my word, I will. If you won't set my people on a path that points to me, I will, and I'm gonna do that by sending my man, and and here's how you'll recognize him. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, chapter seven, verse 14, which points us to our passage in verse nine, which tells us who this son is and what his government, what that path toward it is like. And so, as we uh, take, our, uh, take a look here in verse number six, we, uh, we uh, see right out of the box something about this son. Whomever he is, we know this much. He is God for us. He's for us. He's for you. You've got to really let that sink in. See, in man's economy, those who are ruled serve those who rule, right? I mean, you go back to Greek and Roman mythology and the, the men are always beholden to the gods, Or in the governments of great societies, people are at the disposal of their potentates, right? Uh, Even at work, working for the man, getting it done for the man. The man never does anything for you. You're always working for him. But in God's economy, those who rule serve those who are ruled. And so in the United States, a government that, ostensibly is founded on Judeo-Christian principles, we refer to those who govern us as what? Public servants. That's right. So God served his people by doing for them what they could never have done for themselves. And he did it by neither a plan, rolling out a plan, or impaneling some kind of committee. Rather, he sent a child. He sent His son. He sent the word made flesh. And back in verse 3, it tells us that the arrival of this son brought great joy three times over. And we sang about joy this morning. No wonder that John the Baptist in utero leaped for joy when the unborn Messiah was in his presence. Or, Or why the angelic announcement of this child's birth was expressed not just as joy. But is great joy, mega joy, literally. So, the question that, especially during this time of year, is a good one to ask Does this child bring you great joy? He's for you, the Messiah is for you. Some of you may feel like an object, a tool. For a family member, or a friend, or your boss. The Messiah is for you. He shattered every burden you've borne, verse number four. He's going to burn every evil you have endured, verse five. He's for you. That's something to wrap your identity around. That's something to live for. That's something that brings great joy and the more you meditate on it the more you 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 cogitate on it the more you ruminate on it the the better you understand it the greater your joy especially as you understand the multifaceted dimensions of this messiah's character so uh, we see here he is a wonderful counselor a wonderful counselor Throughout this book, God derides human wisdom, the folly of human wisdom. In fact, in about nine places, he just piles it up, and then he just blows them all up. This child exceeds human wisdom. In fact, Paul refers to him as the wisdom of God from God. What a beautiful thing that the Messiah not only speaks words of instruction, but exemplifies them, lives them out before us. He is the personification of wisdom. We also see that he is the mighty God. John Oswald writes that this uh, this child possesses uh, in here's Oswald power so great then it can absorb all the evil hurled at it until none is left to hurl. Think of all the evil that this world has endured, that you have endured. The Messiah has absorbed all of that and will continue to do so until there is no more evil. He's the everlasting father. Some people say, I cannot think of God as my father. It's too painful. Either I didn't have a father or I had a rotten father. That's why if you have or had a terrible father in time, then you can take supreme consolation in having a good and loving father now and for all time. Or if you lost your earthly father, either to death or to abandonment, then you can take great comfort in the fact that you neither did nor ever will lose your everlasting father. And then the climactic descriptor of this child is this. He's the prince of peace. One scholar put it like this. Through him, the reconciliation between God and man will come that makes possible the reconciliation between man man. And man, and this is why Paul refers to the Messiah himself as our peace. Now, we talked earlier about a plan, and God certainly has a plan. But His plan wasn't limited to words on paper. It was word made flesh. He He Himself is our peace. Ephesians two verses eleven. Through 22, peace is found in him. And he takes those who were formerly at odds with one another and makes them one new person in himself. So what's beautiful is that as many different ethnicities as are represented in this room, we are all preeminently of a new race, a preeminent race, the Christian race that is found in and only in Jesus. And that's why if there's ever going to be peace, justice, and righteousness here on this earth, it's going to be found in Christ, and in Christ alone. Now, according to the end of verse seven, the gift of this multifaceted Messiah, this child, was a sure thing. And we know that because of of that verse. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So God was serious about introducing this child into human history. Uh, he, he, he would do it, he would accomplish it with red-faced intensity. That's uh, what uh, is carried along with that word. I remember when I played football and I was always very earnest down there on the field. And Ronnie Heim's dad uh, told me he liked to look at me through his binoculars because he said, Grundyke, it looks like your face is gonna blow up inside of that helmet. It just gets so red down there on the field and that's exactly what's being communicated here. Uh, the passion that stirs in the hearts of a bride and a groom. The focus of a warrior preparing for battle. That's the, the, these are all things that bespeak the zeal of God and his intention to make this happen and it did. It happened at Christmas. And we know that because Isaiah's prophetic fingerprints are all over the Christmas story. Now, while we celebrate this prophecy at Christmas time, we only celebrate a partial fulfillment because while the Messiah did come in the person of Jesus, his kingdom, though inaugurated, is yet to come in all of its fullness. And that's why Jesus. I uh, told his followers to pray, thy kingdom come. So what, what is this kingdom? What is it like? Well, it, it's like the government expressed in, in the two verses here at which we're looking. One that rests on Jesus' shoulder. We see that there in verse six. And it's one that, as we see in verse seven, is forever certain, forever calm, and forever upheld by pillars of fairness and decency. That's the government for which we're living. That's the path that we need to be following. Even if the future is uncertain, tempestuous, dark, when your feet are planted In that direction, you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. That was certainly the case for Richard Williams and Alan Gardner when in 1851 they left England for Tierra del Fuego as missionaries. And as they made their way south, they were forced to winter in a cold bay where they ran out of supplies and starved to death. Every last one on that ship And uh, uh, there was supposed to be a ship to come and and resupply them, but it never arrived. And when they were discovered amidst all the bodies, they found a diary. And in William's diary on April 18th, he he wrote these words. Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls, and God we feel and know is here. And three weeks later, he wrote on May 7th. Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines. It would not have changed situations with any man living. That comes off the pen of a man who is walking a kingdom that has no end it was also the experience of my dad who faced the final months of his life according to some words that we found on a scrap of paper um, amidst his effects on top of his desk as we were clearing it off uh, after his passing and uh, these, these were the words that he had written God is preparing a place for me. It is heaven. He writes John 14, 1 and 2. All I am experiencing now is to, is to prepare me for that place. So I want to embrace my cancer and Verna's dementia. It's my mother. Loneliness, physical pain, and bodily weakness because God is opening the final chapter of my earthly life. I need to cooperate with him to learn the lessons he needs me to learn in order to be ready, and then all in caps, for that place he's preparing for me. Each day is a new lesson, a new opportunity to allow him to develop the qualities in me which I will need when I meet him face to face. How can I be bitter? His spirit is daily teaching me the lessons he's ordained specifically for me. I want to be a good and obedient student. That comes off the end of a pen of a man who's living for a kingdom that does not end. That's the path he was walking down. It was certainly the experience of Helen Rosevere, who uh, went on to her reward about two, two and a half weeks ago at the age of 91. Um, uh, Rosevere came to Christ as a Cambridge undergrad and it was also during that time she committed her life to missionary service. During a, a, a missionary gathering, uh, during that time she stood up and she declared, I'll go anywhere God wants me to, whatever the cost. And then she began to grapple with the Lord about that and retreated to the mountains and um, had it out, as it were, with him. And, and, and she wrote these words. She said, okay, God, today I mean it. Go ahead and make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. But please, whenever I feel I can't stand anymore and cry out, stop, will you ignore my stop? And remember that today I said, go ahead. And so at age 28, uh, she was a medical doctor. She picked up the French language. She'd taken a course in tropical medicine, and she headed to the Congo, where she settled in the northeast region of the country. And she founded a training school for nurses there. And um, then she transformed a maternity and leprosy ward into a hundred-bed hospital, as well as a a school for paramedics and all sorts of other things as well. Well, as you can imagine, after five years, she was exhausted. And so she retreated back to England uh, for home assignment, and then she returned to a very different Congo because it had been liberated from colony status. It was no longer under Belgium. And in 1964, amidst uh, government unrest, uh, a war broke out. And everything that Roosevelt had done, all the projects in which she had invested herself, were wiped out. The the hospital, the the training center, all these things were gone. And at first she was put under house arrest. Then she was imprisoned. And then she was brutally beaten, thoroughly bloodied, and profoundly humiliated. And concerning that night in particular, she wrote these words. On that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I had felt at last God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. And then, in the midst of that despair, it was as if she heard the Lord saying this, and she wrote this down You asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings, they're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And in time, uh, Rosevere began viewing her horror with, and I, I pick up her words here, with an overwhelming sense of privilege, that Almighty God would stoop to ask of me, a mere nobody in a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something he needed. And privilege then became the banner under which Rosevear conducted her ministry. In fact, 12 years after her, her devastation, she told an audience of thousands, God didn't take away the pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, and in him. He was actually offering the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his sufferings. Those words were spoken by a woman who was on a path toward a kingdom it does not end. So the question, again, that we all have to ask and keep asking is, what path are you on? What path am I on? What, what government do I serve? Who is my Messiah? Is it Donald Trump? Is it Barack Obama? Jerry Brown. You could give yourself no greater Christmas gift this morning than to embrace the Messiah that rises from the passage at which we're looking. To begin walking down a path that's end death is only the beginning. Let's pray. So, down what path are you walking? What path are you really walking? If the bottom fell out from under it, would you be okay? On whom are you relying for your well being? The government? we the God over every government. These are things we need to think on. These are things we need to pray about. God's Messiah is for you. He has your best interests in mind. And he will see you through safely, right to the end and beyond. And so, Lord, we confess that that brings us joy. And I pray that as this season um, moves on, it would bring us greater joy the more we think about it, the more we meditate on it. May this Christmas not be just another Christmas, but even one during which in thinking on these things, the trajectory of our lives is altered. And for some, Lord, I pray it would be altered even in a new direction as they step forward and they embrace you in faith as the author and the giver of life and life again in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.